Hey everybody, this is Mighty Mike Shermer. I'm a guitarist and vocalist and songwriter based in the West Coast, uh, California, and uh, you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So, Mike, the first question you've probably been asked this many times, where does the mighty of Mighty Mike Shermer come from? Well, you know, that just kind of started as a joke. Uh, I, I used to play in a band with a, uh, a wonderful uh, singer, harmonica player uh, named Andy Santana. And uh, and he, he just sort of gave me that handle one night on the bandstand, almost jokingly. And then several years later, uh, I was I was lucky enough to be living in California at the birth of the Internet. So um, and back then, if you didn't, if you, well, even still, maybe to a certain extent, you need a you needed a, a a name that people could spell, and my name Shermer S C H E R M E R has always been notoriously since I was a little kid. I remember getting mail, you know, our family getting mail that was just horrible bastardizations of our of our <laughs> surname. So uh, I was lucky enough to get MightyMike dot com. Uh, just the first time I tried, like I said, I uh, you know one of my housemates was a or a former housemate was. Uh, had worked at, at Yahoo. Uh, several friends of mine were the, of the original 13 employees at Yahoo. I mean, I was right there at ground zero, birth wow. of the internet in Silicon Valley. So, uh, and then somebody, and then another time, oh, I got mighty-mike.com at first. And then about a year later, I was able to get mightymike.com in, uh, uh, you know, $60 in an auction. So, so uh, you know, as I like to say, there's there are mics who are definitely mightier than me. But I have the website. So, <laughs> so you win. <laughs> I don't know if I win, but I have the website. So. <laughs> um, you grew up in New Mexico, is that correct? I did, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Tell me what that was like. Well, it was a great uh, outdoor setting. Uh, not exactly the music center of the world. Um, but uh, I grew up at 7,000 feet in the mountains. I, wow. You know, uh, a lot of outdoor activities, skiing and... and bike riding and hiking and backpacking and all fishing and all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I had a very uh, outdoor oriented existence growing up, but the town is a very interesting place, but it's the birthplace of the atomic bomb. And it's basically a company town where the only thing there is the national laboratory. My, my father was a physicist at the laboratory there and everybody there is highly educated. There's probably more PhDs there per capita than, than most places in the world. And it's a very interesting place. Um, a lot of people who know a lot about one thing and think they know a lot about everything. <laughs> and that's no slag on my on my people in, in Los Alamos. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that we're a bunch of know-it-alls there. So it took me a long time to it took me a long time to escape that in a way, you know. And, and I think part of my uh, journey in the blues was actually a uh, Getting to know real people and regular people, the place where I grew up was really not a representative of of the world in general. I mean, the, my graduating class was about ninety eight percent of the same kids that I went to sixth grade with. Wow! So, yeah, I mean, everybody graduated high school. Almost all of them went to college. It, it was not a representative of, you know, when I got to California and I met people from Berkeley and Oakland and, you know. I was like, oh, okay, this these this is how the world actually is. And I started going to blues blues clubs in West Oakland and that was an eye opening experience, you know. <laughs> so you lived there um all your teenage life? Uh yeah. My deformative years as I call them. So uh yeah, eight. I think we moved there when I was seven or eight and I, I left when I was eighteen as quick as I could. <laughs> so music came into your life, or you started playing guitar around the age of 10. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I wanted to be a drummer originally. I was banging on pots and pans in the kitchen, and my parents uh, already owned a clarinet, and there was coincidentally a clarinet teacher about two two doors down the street. So they said, well, if you play this clarinet that nobody's playing and you and you get good at it, we'll let you play any instrument you want. So after about a year in the band, I was about eight years old at the time, and I think this has to do with me being a Leo and a kind of a uh, maybe a bit of a control uh, freak a little bit. I saw that the, the first chair trumpet in the school band was like the top guy in the band. That was the that was the chair to shoot for. And uh, so I started playing trumpet 
And I played that for a couple of years. And then concurrently, uh, I also went to a music camp about that time, 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. I went to an incredible music camp up in the mountains in New Mexico called Hummingbird Music Camp. And uh, it was a wonderful place. And uh, the, one of the best things about it is they would let you try any instrument you wanted. And they actually had a band called Transfer Band that where you would play an instrument that wasn't yours. You would start on Wednesday and then you actually gave your first performance on Sunday of that same, of that same week, which I can only imagine how they, how that sounded. I'm glad there wasn't cell phones and recordings at the time, (laughs) but it was a great environment. And I went there three or four summers in a row. And uh, I actually went back there a couple of years ago and visited the place and they're still, uh, still functioning there and, uh, and doing great. So that must have been cool. That was a, that was a great uh, environment to be in. So that's where I started playing guitar. Um, just acoustic guitar, learning folk songs and Beatles songs and, and stuff like that. And then, uh, my sister had a friend named, uh, Maggie wing. I'll give a shout out to Maggie wing, who was my first guitar instructor. And she taught me, I think we learned the Eagle Songbook and some Neil Young songs and just learning how to strum and play and sing. I hadn't heard any blues at that time. That came a little later when kind you of evolved. Yeah. Evolved well uh, later in high school, and then of course uh, you know the things that go along with high school, such as marijuana. I think probably inspired some of this was uh, getting into rock and roll, and especially guitar rock. I was really into uh, Hendrix and Clapton, and Stevie Ray had just kind of come on the scene. Then I think he had his first album out right right about when I was sixteen or seventeen years old. Um, so blues rock. I got very into it. I saw a B.B. King concert in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I, I really dug it, but I don't think it blew my mind open the way uh, that when I was 18 and I moved to Santa Cruz, I saw Albert Collins within about the first month that I got there. He played on campus. And uh, man, when I saw Albert Collins, it was over for me. It was like one note and all the hair stood up on my arms and the back of my neck. And I said, I don't know what that is, but I have to have that. And I was standing at actually standing outside the music store the next day with about five or $600 in my hand, you know, that I'd gone to the bank at nine o'clock and the music store opened at 10 and I was waiting there to buy a Telecaster. The owner of the store had to push past me to open the door and let me in there to buy a Telecaster. So. Wow. So you automatically thought that it's the telly. It's not his fingers. Yeah. It's nothing else but the telly. Well, no, I knew it, well, there was more to it than that because I tried, I've been, I'm still trying to play that first note that I ever heard <laughs> him play. And, you know, I'm still searching for that sound, but um, it was more, and it was more him, I think, than anything. It was Albert. He was just such an approachable, wonderful man. He put on such an incredible show. And it was, I think for me at that time, I was 18 and I was into rock music and uh, Albert came out. I guess the blues I had heard I liked, but it, but it was it just didn't speak to me as much. But when Albert came out, he hit one note, and it was so loud and powerful and big and huge. It was everything that I had heard in rock and roll, but there it was one note instead of whereas Stevie Ray would come out and go, play a flurry of notes. Nothing against Stevie Ray Vaughan. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. But when Albert did it, he did it with one note, and that's that's what spoke to me. Just saying that, just telling that story, I'm getting chills right now, you know. But you're certainly not the only person <laughs> who is so greatly affected by him. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, and a lot of my friends uh, in, in this music have a similar story about hearing Albert King or B.B. King or somebody first time and seeing him in person, up close and personal. And then, of course, meeting him. I think that was the big thing. You know, you, I'd been to some rock concerts and stuff and you, you were just way in the back and they were just these little figures on the stage and they were, you know, but at a blues show, boy, there he was right there, you know, and he walked through the crowd with his 2000 foot cord. He looked me right in the eye and it was, you know. <laughs> so did you get a chance to talk to him that night? Uh, not that night, but I did run out and buy that telecast the next day. And then about maybe not that much longer later, um, he was playing on the West coast a lot back then. And there were a lot of West uh, blues clubs around California then and, and shows so I think I chased him around a couple times to a couple different um, concerts. He came to a club called OT Prices that was in Santa Cruz. And I wasn't 21 at the time. He had to be 21 to get into the, to the club. And uh, so I tried to sneak in the club and I got kicked out. And then I saw his bus there and I walked on the bus with my guitar. I wanted to get it signed by him. And uh, 
I walked on the bus and there he was just sitting there. Uh, he's smoking a cigarette. He was watching Magnum PI on a little portable TV. The whole band was on the bus and he just welcomed me right on there. His mom was there. His mom lived in East Palo Alto at the time. And, uh, and so he had some family members there and he's like, Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, my mom. And he like, you know, it was was like, it was just so personal and and awesome. And then uh, I was like, I can't come to the show. I'm not 20. He said, Oh, okay. You know, but then I kind of peeked through the window for most of the show. I was so crazy about Albert Collins. I just hung outside there and looked through the window, you know, stretching my head up above the, to, to get a peek at him. And then when he did that thing where he walked through the crowd playing frosty, he, he walked all the way through the crowd. He walked out the front door. He walked up the front steps and he was standing in the middle of Soquel Drive playing playing the guitar with cars weaving around him. And the whole crowd was at, the whole crowd was out in the, in the in the front lawn of the place. And when they all went back in, I just snuck back in with them. <laughs> so I got to see the end of Frosty and the Encore. And uh, so that was the first time I met him. And then about maybe two years later, I went to the San Francisco Blues Festival. And this uh, this was an incredible experience too. I, I went to the San Francisco Blues Fest and I'd seen the guys a couple of times between then and that story I just told you about. And I, I, I walked up to Johnny B. Gade and I said, hey, where's Albert? You know, and he goes, oh, he's over there in the bus. And I walked over to the bus and I knocked on the bus and I hear this voice go, hey, I'm under here. And I look down there <laughs> and I see a pair of cowboy boots and some brown slacks sticking out from under the bus. And he was literally down there changing the oil on his own bus. Wow. In the parking lot at the San Francisco Blues Festival. <laughs> and I just went, what are you doing? He pulled himself, he rolled himself out on a little roller cart. He said, oh, I'm changing the oil. Like, are you changing the oil or bus right now before you, before your gig? You know, and he goes, uh, well, we got to drive to Vegas after the show. And, you know, someone's got to do it. So <laughs> <laughs> there was a, that was not just funny that like, that was the working man's attitude. Uh, and, you know. That, that that really showed me that, like, you know, if you want to do this in this business, you take matters into your own hands. And sure enough, Albert, get behind the wheel of the bus, and he would drive that thing himself. You know? I, I wonder, um, what did you go to college for? Uh, I actually went there as a music major. I went to UCSC in Santa Cruz. And uh, the only way I ended up in California is because uh, uh, University of California was operating Los Alamos National Lab at the time. So I was able to get in-state tuition rates at any of the California schools. So uh, I knew New Mexico at the time. I didn't know it, but I've, I've since met people from my high school and they said that I used to talk about all the time. Like I was like, yeah, I don't know how I really ended up in music. And, and a friend of mine from high school said, dude, you used to, we used to hear it all the time from you. You said the day I can leave this town, I'm getting out of here. I'm moving to California and I'm, I'm, gonna be a rock and roll star you know, that's before i heard any blues you know i quickly uh got over wanting to be a rock and roll star but but apparently i did always want but you were, you went for music which meant that you were pursuing possibly a career in music yes or no i was more just uh going to college and uh and also the first time i don't know if you've been to santa cruz but the first time i landed there i was just like i'd actually applied to cal and i was going to end up at berkeley which would have been a uh, in retrospect, I'm not sure that would have been the right fit for me because I'd come from a small town and I was really pretty much a country country kid, you know, mountain kid. And uh, I think if I had ended up in, in Berkeley in 1984, that would have been a, a bit of a culture shock to me. But uh, uh, I wasn't I didn't get accepted to Berkeley, but they offered me to go to Santa Cruz, which I had never heard of. And I got there, man, and I took one look around and there was like, you know, people surfing and beautiful women riding around on cruiser bikes and the smell of marijuana in the air. And I was just like, yeah, this, I get to go to college here. Are you kidding? And there was all this music. I remember we were actually, uh, we were actually looking at the college and then we went up in the, in the hills there above Santa Cruz to go visit uh, Henry Cal Redwoods or one of the state parks around there. And we stopped in this Mexican place to eat. I think it was called a Tampico Grande at the time. And uh, uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, and the fabulous Thunderbirds were playing a show there. And I, I was listening to their sound check, you know, and then the week I was there, the Robert Cray band was also playing on campus. I didn't get to see them play, but they were, they were playing on campus at the same, uh, same place where I ended up seeing Albert Collins a year later. So uh, I, I could tell I was in a good, good it was going to be a good place for me and a good fit. So, and it was, yeah, there was a lot of music in, in Santa Cruz at that time. So, At what point did you decide that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Um, 
like I said, my high school friend said I, I always wanted to do it. And I was really more just going to college because, well, my sisters had all gone to college and I didn't want to be the one kid to not finish college. Uh, I was already playing in bands. Um, by my junior year, I was playing in, in bands and, and working, you know, doing gigs. I remember the first time I did a gig and somebody handed me $20 after the gig. And I went like, whoa, I could buy three burritos with this thing. You know, like a, it was like pretty cool. Like all I did was set up my amp and play music and someone handed me 20 bucks. So uh, I, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It was more just like I just started doing it. And then we start, there were, there were opportunities there to play in, in, in bars. And so, especially once I turned 21, uh, we had a little band called the blues monsters and, uh, and we were playing a club. There was a club in, in Santa Cruz called Lulu Carpenters and we were playing there every Monday and Andy Santana's band was playing there every, uh, Friday, I believe. And we would alternate Saturdays sometimes. And so there was just a nice little uh, community there of people. And then when Andy and I put a band, those two bands kind of both folded and, and we put our bands together. Um, we were working six nights a week. Uh, you know, I was paying maybe $200 a month for rent and we were playing every night for about, you know, 50, 60 bucks a piece. It was probably, you know, I was like, it was the pinnacle of success. I was like, you know, I was like, I didn't, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was 23 years old. My health insurance was about, $25 a month. It was, you know, it was, life was just easy. And we just kind of kept doing that. That band, the Soul Drivers, we, we played 200 nights a year for about eight years. At that point, would you have, did you have a goal at that point? Not really, but I do remember talking to my father at some point, maybe I was turning about 26, 27. And, and uh, I know when I turned 30, um, I had already achieved, I did have goals. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to tour in Europe. I wanted to have some kind of record uh, out there, a, a CD, because that was the thing. I came up in a good time when, uh, just before Pro Tools and everything, uh, but, but when small studios were able to produce albums on, you know, unknown artists, really. You didn't need a big record label at that point. Like the CD revolution, which really just blew that open. Like anybody could make a CD. So the Soul Drivers got a, a small record deal with a, a couple of guys out of San Francisco that had started a label called Blues Time. And, and we did an album and we went to Europe three or four times and we were playing uh, as much, almost as much as we want to. I met up with Angela Straley about that time and she started using us as her backing band. Um, next thing I knew, we were playing the, the Bammy Awards. I was backing up Bonnie Raitt, Booker T, uh, Joe Lewis Walker, the Gospel Hummingbirds. You know, it was like one thing just kept leading to another. And I remember uh, my dad asking me, so how much longer are you going to do this? And at that point, I had already I had already been to Europe. I had a, 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 a CD out and, uh, you know, I had played and, you know, I'd been on several tours across the country and and I'd already, you know, basically achieved the goals that I wanted to achieve because I kind of told myself, well, if this isn't, you know, working out by the time I'm 30, maybe I'll go do something else. But by the time I was 30, I'd already surpassed my goals and then some and I was having a great time. and. Uh, and he said, how much longer are you going to do this? And I said, well, I figure, you know, another 40 years I'll be dead or so. So <laughs> at that time, like, you know, to be a 70 year old, you know, blues man, it seemed like nothing. Of course, now I want it to go, you know, another 40 years. So, <laughs> well, How did your dad feel about it? You know, he was actually okay with, he was actually okay with it because uh, he grew up an only child. And uh, I think his mother didn't really let him do anything and uh, anything that he wanted to do. And so, you know, the, the hitting the books and all that and, and going to college, he, I mean, he was very successful in his field and, uh, and probably one of the smartest people I've ever known in my life, but he never really got to follow his dreams per se. He, he just sort of took the path that was, he was good at science. So he, he went on that path and then, uh, followed that. But then by the time he was, you know, I remember when I turned 35 and I was like, geez, my dad had four kids and a mortgage and two cars. And, and, you know, I mean, he, he was, you know, I was, you know, I was in Amsterdam when I turned 35, I was in Amsterdam on tour, you know, so it's like, you know, everybody has their path. Mine was just sort of chosen for me. And I think a lot of it goes back to that moment when I saw Albert Collins, it was like a door opened up in front of me and everything behind me just closed. I kind of just didn't have a choice. I just went down that road and, 
and here I am, you know, today. So, so at the age of thirty, when your dad asked you, and 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 then, had you not achieved those goals, what else would, do you think you would have done? Uh, I can't really, I can't really say. I mean, I, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. Could I? I ended up with a degree in American history. Um, I didn't, I didn't get a music degree. I wasn't happy with the music program at that school, but I did want to keep going to school there. And, uh, so I got a, a degree in American history. I don't know. I might've been a teacher or a lawyer gone into some kind of the internet. Like I said, the internet was just starting to explode at that point. So, uh, there were all kinds of opportunities out there. You know, sometimes I think I might've missed a lot of them because I mean, my, I have no complaints about the way my life has gone, but the people I knew in Santa Cruz at that time, or, you know, they did very well because they were on the birth of, like I said, I know, I know several of the people that were the first 13 employees of Yahoo. You know, I was, I was there when the stock went IPO. So, mm. <laughs> so tell me about that kid in the year 2000 who released his first solo album to the artist that you are today. How, how have you changed over those years? Um, well, I think a big part of what happened was, uh, I started doing a lot of gigs on my own and making choices for myself. Like uh, right before that point, we had this band and we were playing and we were playing, uh, you know, we made decisions as a band. Well, Andy and I sort of made the decisions for the band, but, but June Core was in that band too, a great drummer who now plays with Charlie Muscle White. And, uh, and, and we would make decisions as a band. And, and so I think the first thing that happened with producing my first solo album was having to be the producer and make decisions about who to hire for that session and what songs are going to be on there and how it is. Uh, I hadn't developed really at all as a songwriter. I had a couple good original songs on that, on that album, but I hadn't um, pursued it. Um, so I think that's the, probably the biggest difference somebody would hear. Well, also that I'm a lot more, I think it cost me more money to produce that record in the year 2000 than my latest one did. And that's not be, just because of the cheaper studios it's because I'm just better at it and much more comfortable in the studio. I'm not redoing guitar tracks over and over, or redoing my vocals, or I'm much more comfortable just playing what I play and putting it out there. So probably just a comfort level and also the songwriting. My songwriting has, has grown by leaps leaps and bounds since then. So. Okay, so when I talk to musicians, they talk, when, when I mention your name, they describe you as a songwriter first. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's probably the way you want to be known. Tell me, when did the importance of songwriting occur to you? Uh, I think it was sort of, uh, I sort of backdoored into it. It was more like, well, I remember when I was touring with John Namath, and uh, we would talk a lot about music, and John Namath had said he had read uh, a book called The Indie Bible, about, you know, suggest it's a, it's a book that's out there, uh, so, you know, suggestions on how to how to live a life as an independent musician. And he said one of the things he read in the Indie Bible is if, if somebody tells you you're good at something, is to listen to that. Like, it's not necessarily, if somebody tells you, well, you're a good songwriter, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're not a good singer or that you're not a great guitar player. It, it, they're just telling you that, like, this is what I think you do best. And, and you know, the, the Indie Bible even takes it to the point of, like, if you write a really good, promotional email or you get people or you're good at hustling up gigs if you're really good at getting gigs and people say man you're really good at getting gigs maybe you should be a booking agent and not a musician you know if you're really good at writing promo and talking about uh you know things that are coming up or, or promoting your your new record or promoting a gig maybe you should be a publicist and not a musician so uh i i sort of took that like i just kept getting positive feedback on my not that I don't get positive feedback on my singing and man, especially guitar playing, because I've had this career where it's been uh, a solo work and also I play guitar with other artists as well. So I, I get a lot of positive feedback on my guitar playing, but I know in my heart I'll never be as good a guitar player as Chris Kane or Kid Anderson or Charlie Beatty or Duke Robillard or there's, I mean, I could, Anson Thunderbird, I could name lots of guys in the blues right now that, are, you know, will play circles around me. There's guys I've never even heard of. I moved to Austin, Texas in 2009. A guy can serve your pizza down there. He probably plays better than you. So you don't want to, you know, it's, it's just follow, follow the things. Like if somebody says, you know, good dog, keep being a good dog. You know? <laughs> so, 
Okay, so how does one become a better songwriter? Uh, that I don't know. I really don't have any tips. I don't consider myself. I I just follow songs as they come to me. I'm not one of the my my songwriting heroes. All talk about you know if we were talking about great songwriters, I'm not even talking about in blues. I'm talking about Tom Petty, John Hyatt, uh, Elvis Costello, Bob Dylan, uh, just to name a few. Um, Guy Clark, uh, Robert O'Keefe, that the list goes on and on of great songwriters. A lot of them sit down and write songs every day, whether they feel like it or not. And uh, they're, that's a craft. That's a, um, I'm not really that type of songwriter. I go through phases of my songwriting where I can write 10 in a week and then maybe have nothing for a month. So I just follow the inspiration when it happens. Um, but one thing I do like to do when people, when I talk to other people about songwriting or they say, Hey, what do you think of this song? I want to hear the story in the song. Cause to me, that's what a, a great song should tell a story in three, in three to five minutes to me. It should, it should make me feel something and it should tell a story that, uh, more than one person can relate to. I think that's an important thing too. Like a lot of people write songs that are so personal uh, I'm sure you've had this experience where you listen to somebody's song and it, it might be a good song or have a catchy thing. Or it's almost like you're reading somebody's diary or something, you know, it's right. almost like, you know what I mean? You're, yeah. it, it feels a little personal and awkward and it's like, Oh, did you write that song? Whereas I think, and another thing about the blues has always been transcendent of, of the person uh, singing it. You know, you don't have to have, Everybody has felt pain. You don't have to, you know, not everybody obviously has come from, I come from a pretty privileged background. I come from a different background. I don't, I haven't lived a life of the blues, but I, I have lived through pain and heartache and loss. You know, I've lost my parents. I've been through relationships that have failed. I've been through, everybody has experienced pain at some point and can understand that. Everybody has experienced joy. Everybody can experience a joyful tune. Everybody can experience. So always try to write, not necessarily in somebody else's voice, but that's a good thing to do sometimes too, but just try to write for other, other people. Let it transcend yourself, you know, I think. I know you're considered a blues musician. I know that you're greatly influenced by the blues, but when I listen to your music, I don't necessarily always just hear blues. Absolutely. Is that ever a, an issue? Is that ever a conflict? It was. It's only a conflict if I let it be a conflict. I try to, if if blues DJs want to play my stuff, wonderful. That's great. I hope they do. Um, I don't consider myself a blues man per se. I didn't. I'm white to begin with. I, you know, I, uh, I, I didn't grow up in the South. I didn't grow all the classic things about a blues man I don't have any of that I'm just a guy that likes blues and I did study blues guitar a lot I've, I I consider if anything I'm a student of of the blues because I mean I sat down with Albert Collins records and especially T-Bone Walker records and uh you know Freddie King Albert King you know I have I've sat down and tried to learn those guitar styles for many many hours when I was younger especially in my 20s I I spent out eight ten hours a day trying to learn one T-Bone Walker solo. So I put time in along that, but I don't consider myself a blues man. I I love all kinds of music. And, uh, you know, if there's anybody, I I probably like it myself too, in terms of the different types of music that I listen to, love and try to write and recreate. Probably someone more like Doug Somm or Deborah McClinton, you know, Mm -hmm. because, uh, and also it's 2022. There's sort of no excuse for not being well-versed days everything is out there i mean i'm just looking at these uh cds behind your head right now you know i i, I find it hard to believe those are all blue cds back there maybe they are just over there <laughs> see uh there's nothing wrong with being well versed there's there's soulful music uh from all parts of the world you know there's a uh, i mean i love all, all kinds of music and I, every time i've heard a lot of music i actually and just when I think I'm not going to hear uh, some, uh, a student of mine, actually, uh, I picked up some online students during the pandemic 
And one of them has, a, a, he's a geology professor and he has done a lot of work in, uh, in Trinidad and Tobago. And he knows a ton about, uh, Calypsonians and, and Calypso music. And he turned me on to a lot of great Calypso music. And to me, that's like, well, that's the blues of, of Trinidad mm-hmm. you know, to me. And they tell stories, you know, doesn't it not necessarily blues tunings or blues format, but they're telling stories. They're speaking from the heart. And, uh, you know, in that respect, it's, it's just like blues. Okay. You mentioned the fact that you're a solo artist, but you also have played with a lot of people. Tell me about the different approach between being a solo artist and being the guitar player for Marshall or playing with Elvin Bishop. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think every side man should have their own band at some point. So you can, so they could experience the challenges. I mean, I, the, the complaints that I hear from side men, nine times out of 10 are like, well, you've never done that. Have you, you know, <laughs> you don't, you have no idea how hard it is to get five people in the same place at the same time, pay them all, you know, have the, pull the gig off, pay them all, have everybody be happy, you know, uh, and vice versa, I, I think it'd be a good idea for all all the bosses out there to to be a side man once in a while and and see what the challenges are like from that from that side. So I do try to separate those two things. I I try to go into each situation. If I'm being a side man, I try to like when I'm when I'm touring with Marsha, I'll delicately make suggestions wherever I can, but I know it's her band and it's her, she's the boss. And ultimately she has any power of veto, if not more than that. So, you know, fortunately I've worked with all great bosses. I've never had to work with, or if I did, it wasn't for very long, you know, working with a tyrant or anything, but I've always worked with, with great people that value my opinion. So, um, but you do have to keep those things separated and you kind of have to remind yourself once in a while along the way that this isn't about you. This is about, you know, making somebody else sound as good as they can sound and get their business done as well as they can, as well as it can be done. So, so, and I expect the same of, of the sign band that work for me. So, you know, I try to be communicative with them, pay them as much as I can uh, be as fair as I can. But at the end of the day, once in a while, I need to say, no, the guy that's, you know, I'm, this is my decision. I'm going to, we're going to do it this way. How did you wind up joining Marsha's band? Uh, this is like 2009, right? Yeah, 2009, I joined her band, but I, I met, first met Marsha Ball when I was 23 years old. I was playing with Angela Straley. And I should mention that just about everybody I've ever worked with, if I were to draw up, make a family tree, it, it all goes through Angela Straley. Like when I first started working with Angela, um, she had, even if she does not a household name, there are so many musicians and other singers and, and front people and people in the business that know her, respect her, or, or at the very least are aware of her. Um, that, you know, start when I started playing with her, which I think was 1993, I mean, and through her, I met, like I said, everybody, Maria Moldar, Elvin Bishop, uh, Marsha Ball, Tracy Nelson. Uh, I mean, I could, I could sit here and list them all day, but you know, most of the people I've, I've played with comes through that. So I was, uh, a lot of times Angela and I would go out and do gigs and she would just bring me kind of as a musical director, guitar player, and to sort of translate what she needed to the band that we were working with. And uh, we did a gig with Marsha on Mountain Stage, actually on NPR. And, and we used Marsha's band and we played. And that was the first time I met Marsha. And, and we crossed paths over the years. And then we crossed paths later again. I was playing with Elvin Bishop and we crossed paths on the Blues Cruise. And I was playing. And we it was two years in a row, actually, I was playing with Elvin. And Marsha was also on the Blues Cruise. One year she had a great guitar player named Mike Keller on guitar. The next year she had another great guitar player named Andrew Dafsiger. And as much as I love Andrew and I saw him, I was like, well, who's this guy? How come you didn't call me? And she goes, well, you don't live in Austin. And so, you know, you don't live in Austin. I say, well, next time, you know, that's true. I don't live in Austin, but if it comes up again, let me know, you know, maybe I'll make a move or whatever. So uh, Andrew had a baby and wanted to get off the road and uh, they called me and it couldn't have come at a better time in my life. I know this is going to sound a little corny, but I had, I had just gotten out of an eight year relationship. My dog had died. 
it was it was like a country song waiting to happen. I had to move to Texas, you know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> to pick a truck. Yeah, right. So uh, that's how that came about, and uh, it was a perfect life change. And also to show up in in Austin and already have the gig with Marsha was a uh, was a huge thing because Austin is such. There are so many great guitar players. There's so many great musicians in that town, but mm-hmm. especially guitar players. Just to just show up there, I'd wanted to move there several times in my life and uh you know it was always just terrifying just to go there and be guitar player number 4530 you know and just here i am can i have a gig you know it's like but to to show up there and already have the gig with marcia i wasn't a threat to anybody uh you know i wasn't i wasn't there to try to take over the music scene i had no agenda other than to just go there and be a part of that music scene get to know people, get to know friends, and mostly to listen to, to great music. I could, that was the first time in my life I was able to just walk out the door and, and hear great music any night of the week, anytime I wanted to. So, Does, does the way you play guitar change playing behind a pianist? Definitely. Yeah, you have to play, especially a pianist like, like Marsha, who plays, she plays a lot. She has a heavy left hand and plays a lot in the right hand. And, um, she really doesn't need a band. I mean, she she's uh, nice enough to employ a band and to feature us a lot and yell our names a lot throughout the night and uh, and take us all over the world. But I mean, she she can sit there and play piano by herself, and it's every bit as entertaining. So, um, yeah, it's a matter of uh, finding your parts. Um, she does like having a uh, you know when your solo comes to really just step on the gas and make it count for those however many bars that is. And then also in that band, uh, we have a single saxophone player. So I end up playing basically the trumpet parts, but on, on guitar. So okay. uh, there, there are a lot of horn parts that are covered by that too. So that's that's one thing. And I did that in Elvin's band a lot too. We had a trombone player named Ed Early, and I would play uh, horn parts with him. Because El- Elvin, it's the same thing. It's like playing with another great guitar player. It's like, well, where do you find your spots, you know? So, so what is it about you that finds you working with all these great musicians? Uh, I mostly chalk it up to luck, but also just being, uh, you know, being available and saying yes, you know, uh, being responsible and professional and, uh, and knowing the music. I think when you said like, how, you know, how do you, how do you play with a pianist like Marsha Ball? Well, how do you play with anybody? Um, I, th- I think doing my homework in blues and soul music, and rock and roll and all the music I've listened to and sat down and learned and then getting on gigs Every bit of that is more and more knowledge, more and more experience all along the way. So every time I do get a call for a gig, I'm bringing all that knowledge and experience to the table. And it's not just what to play. Most of the time, it's what not to play. And I think by, like by listening, if you listen to, say, a Wilson Pickett record or, a, you know, you listen to guys like Steve Cropper or, or, you know, any of the old soul music, there's not a lot of guitar on, you know, but the guitar parts are important. When they come in, they, they poke out, they, boom, they're there. They have to be there. They have to be played with good tone and good feeling. But it's not like a guitar band. And so that's just one example. Like when I played with Howard Tate, nine people in that band, you know, big is really about the horn arrangements and the singer. The guitar parts were important, but they weren't big. They weren't huge, you know. It's, they just they had to be there at the right time. So knowing your role, I think, it's like playing on a sports team, I, I suppose. How long did you play with Howard Tate? Um, I think that was about six years total. Wow! Right after he, uh, you know, after he was rediscovered, and uh, he did a few gigs on the East Coast. He had a, a band out there, uh, the Uptown Horns, and uh, and then he came to California. Uh, they brought him out for a, a Village Music. Um, record showcase actually him and Betty Levette was both their first performances on the west coast well it's wow. Howard's first performance since the 60s he had been out here he'd been out in San Francisco in like 69 I think and uh, and then he did completely disappeared from the music business and then Betty Levette um, it was also her first show ever I think on the west coast wow. and it was a little place called the Sweetwater in Mill Valley and then we did the San Francisco Blues Festival on that same tour and uh, he really dug uh, the band uh, was put together by a guy named Austin Delone, um, who I've been playing with for years. And Austin put together a, a band of people that listened to those early Howard Tate records, and we 
and everybody was on the same page as far as trying to recreate that sound. There was no other agenda uh, there than to just like really just recreate the sound of those first two Howard Tate records. That's all we that the, all we were thinking about at the time. So I think he really appreciated that, and it worked out really good. There's a song he does called "Get It While You Can." Yeah, just a stunning song. Yeah. Yeah, and all those all those songs were written by uh, were written by Jerry Ragaboy, of course, and uh, who I listening to those records that really informed my songwriting a lot. And I got to hang out with Jerry; he came on the gigs a lot of times, and and he was a, a very uh, stickler about tempo, everything being in the right tempo, and, and you know, everything had to be a certain way. But I, I learned a lot from that, like the way he put together a two minute master, two or three minute masterpiece. It was really like, wow, there's so much in that. Get it while you can is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. What's it, two minutes and 40 seconds long? And it's just, all it makes you want to do is hit hit play again as soon as you're done, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have a new album out. I do. Tell me about that. It's called Just Getting Good. It was uh, a lot of songs that I, I wrote during the pandemic. Um, what Was the was pandemic a, a difficult time for you? Yeah, I wouldn't say a difficult time. Uh, I didn't get COVID until, uh, well, if, if at all, I got it uh, way later in the process and I was already vaccinated. So um, I didn't have that. Uh, my friend Paul Osher died of COVID. That was hard. That was about a year ago yesterday. Um, it was a hard time, I think, for everybody. It wasn't mm-hmm. any harder than me, obviously, than, and a lot of people had it way worse than me. But it was also... Uh, a lot of things became clear. I think a lot of people have had this same experience where uh, I think I think the pandemic for a lot of people made us think about, you know, when it all comes down, at the end of the day, who do you want to be with? Where do you want to be? Um, what do you want to do with your life? You know, a lot of people are changing jobs and, and doing move to different places. And, you know, it made a lot of people reevaluate what they're doing with their lives. So in that respect, it was good. And I think a lot of these songs reflect that, uh, especially the fact that, uh, my wife-to-be, Kimmy Pickens, uh, helped me write a couple of songs, and she sings on it a little bit And because I didn't have anybody else to play with. <laughs> you know, we hung out, and, uh, you know, and actually I didn't even know she was a singer, really, before before any of this. And she's a, she's a wonderful singer. She's not a blues singer. She's more of a country singer, but she has a beautiful crystal clear voice, and, uh, and it, we definitely put it to good use on this record. And uh, it was an interesting record for album for me to do because I didn't have 12 songs ready to go. Every other album I've done, I've had, you know, 10 or 12 songs ready to go. And it's like, here, guys, here's these songs. I maybe just send them a little demo and we'll go in and hash them out in the studio and we'll do them in a couple of days. And then I'll, you know, put the finishing touches on it later. So it's more like a one big project and we go in and we do it. Whereas this one, we sort of just did it when we could throughout the pandemic, when people felt safe and when things were good and at different times we would get down to the studio together and, uh, and maybe knock out one or three, one, two or three songs at a time. So it feels like at first it felt like the album wasn't really going to hang together because, and if you listen to it, obviously there's a, there's a Calypso type of song. There's like a, a Tex-Mex rock and roll type of song. There's some blues songs. There's a basically a country ballad on there. So it's a little all over the map uh, stylistically, but at the same time, it's a period of my life that I was going through. Um, so the songs hang, to get, hang together, I think, that well. And with my voice, my style of songwriting, and my style of guitar playing, I think it all holds together really well. So. There's a sense of humor about a lot of songs that you write. Is that a conscious thing? Yeah, well, I try to never lose my sense of humor. And that was uh, that was one thing Kimmy and I talked about early on in the pandemic was like, whatever else happens, you know, let's be able to at least s- smile and laugh at the end of the day, because it was a very serious time, mm-hmm. as you know. I mean, a lot of serious things were going on. But uh, comedy and uh, laughter has always just been hugely important to me. So and I think that's kind of your job as an entertainer is to, you know, you want pe- you want to make people think and you want to make them uh, uh, feel. But, you know, people also want to escape their, their lives, I think, sometimes. Or, uh, you know, get a glimpse into someone else. Like, you know, people like to laugh. So it can never hurt, you know, to 
if you can if you can put a smile on someone's face, you you did your job as an entertainer. So, well, was it easy to write during the pandemic? Uh, yeah. Well, I didn't have much else going on, so. <laughs> but but it, it works both to... ways, right? Because sometimes people have nothing to do and they do nothing. Other people become very productive. That's true. Well, the hardest thing was actually uh, Kimmy and I came out of the gate and we did a bunch of videos uh, right at the top of the pandemic that were all funny songs and all, you know, and, and they were all about COVID really or, or COVID related matters. We wrote a song about the guy that uh, the first one was written about the guy that they gathered up all the hand sanitizer in a truck in Tennessee and hoarded it all. And we wrote a song about, you might have to cut this. We wrote a song called Matt Colvin, you're an asshole. And that, that kind of went a little viral on the first night that it came out. It got like, you know, 20,000 hits on the first night or something. So uh, it kind of took off from there. And then we wrote songs about, you know, the kids on the first spring break during the, during COVID that, you know, we're just like, ah, there's no COVID. We're going to spring break. No one's going to stop us. And so we would just take different side subjects uh, that were in the news and we'd write a song about it and put it out there and try to get people to laugh. That was the whole idea. It was like everybody was dealing with this very serious situation and this heavy situation. We didn't know if the world was going to end, but, you know, at least for a few moments, we can at least, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, have a good time for, for a minute, you know, try to, try to never lose sight of that so at the end of all that it was kind of like well none of these songs you know i want that genre to go completely away i don't want to hear anybody's covid songs ever again you know (laughs) it was fun when it was happening you know writing songs about there not being any toilet paper in the (laughs) in the the shelves and stuff but you know i'll be glad when that genre is gone and seems to be gone now so um so actually only one of these songs were uh, just getting good was retooled into uh, into being a, a post pandemic song. Every other song I looked at from that time and went, "Well, this is just about you know." As Alvin said, "Well, you got to have a really strong feeling about something to write a song about it." And the only things I have strong feelings about right now are this. So you know, when I asked him during the, I checked in with him during the pandemic and said, "You've been writing any songs?" He goes, "Well, that what else is there to write about?" You know. <laughs> But, but, so but when you it was that was the that was the hump to get over was like to start actually writing songs again that might last uh you know whenever i whenever i record a song not whenever i write a song but whenever i record a song that i've written i want it to last i want i want to be long gone 200 years from now and somebody able to put that song on and go yeah you know cool i like that you know but for you to make funny songs about weird things that are going on that comes easy to you you could just whip them off no, I, I wouldn't say that, but, uh, you know, having Kimmy to bounce him off of is, is a good thing. I mean, we, you know, we both love comedy and, and listen to a lot of, co- uh, comedians and podcasts of, of comedians. So, um, go to comedy shows and, and this and that. So I, no, it's definitely not easy, but if the, if the spirit comes to you and, you know, I, and that's, that's where I get back to writing a song. If you want to write a song, if you listen to my song silence on that record, that's a, uh, I co-wrote that with a, a, a singer named Felice Garcia. I mean, there's, you know, that's just a, that song just makes me cry, but you know, there's, a, it's not like every, I couldn't do an album of all comedy. That's, that's for sure. I just, I just go with whatever feeling is there and usually it starts with the title, you know, like uh, Steve Ehrman, my bass player just called me up and he said, you know, he'd obviously been having some kind of a, issue with it in his relationship and he said man we need to write a song called it's it's not me it's you (laughs) and so (laughs) i just took the title and and kind of roll with it from there and then i let it i let it go down the road that it wants to go down i don't try to force it into being a blues song or saying this or that i just kind of i'll say those words it's not me it's you and then i kind of boom i'm hearing a melody in my head that goes with that and it turned into kind of a mavericks rock and roll type of song uh, instead of a blues song, but I, I just I've learned to just kind of let it go that way instead of trying to force it into something else. So I want to talk about one other song of yours, which is my big sister's radio. You mentioned it before the podcast started about Tommy Castro covering it, which made you mm-hmm. a bona fide songwriter. Um, yes, but, it were sure. But beyond that, this is also a song that was featured on Bruce Springsteen's Series Six M radio show. When that happened, did right. you know about this, or did you know ahead of time? 
uh, a fan, uh, actually a friend of mine, uh, sent me a Facebook message and she, uh, listens to that program. I don't have XM radio and, uh, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Bruce Springsteen, but it's not like I'm, you know, you know, tuning into his radio show religiously every, you know, I mean, I, I love, I love Bruce Springsteen, but she's a, a huge fan. She listens, she listened and he, apparently he was doing, uh, and that was pandemic related too. He started doing his own radio show during the pandemic. Uh, once every two weeks on the E Street station, and it was called from from my house to yours. And he started; he would have a theme on each show. And so this that week's theme was all songs about the radio. So somehow, uh, him or one of his people uh, found that song, and he loved it. He talked it up, and uh, and you know, read part of my bio on the air. And uh, and the best thing about it was, I think he put me on there between like Tom Petty. Joni Mitchell, the blasters, you know, and me. So it's like, <laughs> it was pretty cool, you know. And he's not a bad songwriter himself. That no, that's true. That's true. Matter of fact, too good a songwriter. I wouldn't mind if he covered that song. <laughs> Bruce, if you're listening, have at it. <laughs> what does that mean to you? So, yeah, that was good. But I did I did notice, uh, I did notice a, a bump in website hits after that, you know, and I was getting messages from a lot of people in New, New Jersey, obviously. He's... <laughs> Got a lot of fans in, in New Jersey. So, and then somebody sent me the transcript of the show. There was like somebody that's so into that show that they transcribe it wow. um, every week. And so, uh, I somebody sent me the link to that, and then I went and looked that up, and I was able to kind of milk it for all it was worth on social media. So. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, but it was real. It was great. Yeah, it was great. It really uh, that song has uh, just keeps uh, showing legs. You know, I, I did it in two thousand seven. It was great. It was already good for me. It was, there's a, I don't know if you know much about beach music in the Carolinas. No. There's a sort of subgenre of R and B music uh, called beach music. And it was popularized by kids in the sixties uh, and seventies. They would go to the beach bars uh, along the Carolina coast okay. and they would listen and they would do a dance called the shag. And uh, the shag uh, is really uh they're, the songs have to be a certain tempo and they really like them to be in a certain groove. There's not never any like wailing guitar or anything. It's a, some blues songs cross over into shag dance and beach music, but um, if they do, they're never like, uh, you know, ripping guitar or anything. They're, they're more just like nice nugget songs. And they tend to be at a certain tempo and a certain groove. And uh, they picked up on that song. And uh, it was Carolina Beach Music Song of the Year that year. And I, they flew me out to the Carolinas a couple of times to play the awards uh, ceremony and to play one of their big dances. And so that, that was cool. And then Tommy did it a couple of years later. And then I, I got all kinds of press from it on that. And it also helped my uh, solo uh, career, just, you know, being coming known as a songwriter after that. And people started paying attention. And then, uh, you know, every time I think it's going away, then boom, Bruce Springsteen hears it for the first time. And, uh, and it's, it's right back where it was. So I've, you know, been very lucky got very fortunate with that song which took me 15 minutes to write by the way so. <laughs> okay so tell me about that i mean you would have never known in that 15 minutes that this would have been something that has has a life of its own um and right. there might be other yeah. songs that you've written that you might think are better or more special to you how do you view things like that with your songs. Yeah. Well, I think that just goes to show you uh, the nature of music and how it speaks to people. Uh, you never know. And that's why really, if there's songwriters out there, uh, you know, record even, and it's really hard right now because there's like almost no financial gain in putting out albums these days. You know, it's really, uh, you know, I was lucky to have my last seven albums come out at a time where I could stand up there on the bandstand and sell them off the bandstand on the breaks of my gigs. And, you know, if a thousand CDs came in the mail, I would be like, boom, there's, there's $10,000 right there, you know, right. like, but, but now like, it's, it's really hard to, it's getting harder for, for songwriters to think about like, is it really worth it to like construct an album of these songs or even put out this sig uh, single, like, is it even worth it to me? So uh, I guess that's a long way of saying it's good to have your songs out there. You never know uh, where someone, the right person is going to fall on the right ears. It could end up in a movie or a commercial or something. It could, you know, you never know. That's just the commercial part of it. Even better is if you can touch somebody's life through that song. And that's been the best thing about that song 
is getting to hear because, and we talked about this earlier, how your song always needs to, a good song will always transcend the person that wrote it, the person that's singing it. Tommy heard that song and he said, this is my story too. A lot of people have told me that like, oh man, I used to stand on my bed, uh, you know, and point, point my radio at the roof and I would get things from, from this station or I used to wake up on before my parents got up and dominated the radio in the morning and I could turn on this and I could get this station. People told me their own stories. I used to go into my sister's room and listen to her albums and this and that. You know, people, I got to hear so many people's stories of how they first discovered music or discovered a genre of music that, that touched them and changed their lives. That's been the best thing about that song, really. But at the end of the day, that song came about, we were sitting around at dinner one night and somebody said, so how do you get, how do you get a song on the radio anyway? And just jokingly, I said, maybe if you put radio in the title, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next day I was kind of just sitting around plunking on the guitar and, uh, and I had been wanting to write kind of a Sam Cooke style shuffle just to put into the live set because we didn't really have anything at that time. And, uh, And I'd gotten to a point where like, instead of learning a cover song, anytime I, I felt like my set, my live set needed a certain tempo or a certain groove, a certain style of song, instead of doing a cover song in that spot, I wanted to do an original song. So so I just started plunking the song and singing the hook, radio, radio. And it just, next thing I knew, like I said, 15 minutes later, that song was completely done. So it was just a moment of uh, inspiration and, uh, you know, random luck occurrence really you know or or maybe things lead lead you to that road to where you're ready to write that song at that moment i don't know um do songs come that easily to you often i mean because i hear both the good ones the good ones do yeah and a lot of people other songwriters have told me that the good ones seem like they take half an hour they write themselves in a half hour you get an idea and they just put it up three verses and a bridge and it's it's like, wow, maybe you make a few little tweaks along the way. And the ones that I really like work on for a month and try to construct, those ones never seem to pan out. You know, they, they, they sometimes turn into a, into a good song, but they don't turn into that, that song, you know, that they don't turn into a hit, but that's okay. Yet not every song is supposed to be a hit. So does that change your approach on how you write songs? It changes my approach on how to, how to do an album. A lot of times, like not that not that I'm throwing filler in there by any I want all the songs to be good and to speak to somebody, but not every song has to. If you try to write a hit, there are very few people that can write a hit every time they sit down. I mean, there are some some people out there, but even if you think about it and if you think about it, like just just go to Apple Music sometime and look up essentials of any some of the greatest artists you get about 12 down and you start going, huh, I don't know that song. I don't know that one. Like, you know, some of the greatest songwriters in history, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really are good for about 10 or 12 mega hits. I mean, even even Bob Dylan, the Beatles, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, the Beatles, probably the, uh, the Stones, probably the ultimate example of like hit songwriters and maybe you get to 25 before you... Right. You'd start going like that wasn't that big a hit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, I just I don't try to. I just try to write a song. If if somebody likes it, great. I hope they. I hope they do. Uh, like I say, I'm always trying. I'm not. I'm, I'm never writing just from my diary or anything like that. I'm trying to write a song that other people will relate to. But not everything's for everybody, right? So so. Based on what you said about the concerns about albums these days, does that change things? I mean, you're a songwriter, so you have to keep writing. But whether or not you record them and sell them as a CD, does, is that a, a worry to you, or how does that work? It's just different. It's just going to take a, a mind readjustment going forward. This is really the first album. Um, I mean, my last one was three years ago, and it was starting. It was already starting to tip. The good thing about blues music and even though you know not everything i do is blues but the good thing about blues fans is uh, well blues fans right now have a pretty wide range of of music that they'll listen to mm-hmm. so that's kind of nice you know um for a guy like me because they i think that a lot of a lot of my fans appreciate that i don't just write blues and just perform blues so um they don't get bored so um but yeah going forward it's going to be 
it's going to, you know, blues fans are still buying CDs. Even if they don't have CD players, they'll, they'll buy CDs on the gigs, at least playing live. You know, I'm not getting many sales, uh, through the website anymore, but, um, or, you know, CD baby completely shut down. They don't even, uh, have basically sell out of their warehouse anymore. A lot of places are like that. Amazon is barely selling any CDs. So, um, you know, as you know, record stores don't even really exist anymore. There's occasionally there's an independent record store if it's in a hip enough town to right. to support it. Vinyl's making a little bit of a comeback, but that's a niche market with people who are who are into it. And uh, but the cool thing about blues fans is they they understand um, what we're what we're going through, and that's how you know that's how a lot of us made made our living for the last twenty years. So. Um, they're very, they're been super generous about doing that. Like I said, they'll buy a CD at a gig, um, just to have Marsha ball, you know, thank you from Marsha ball, sign it. You know, we have lines of people at the gigs that they want to do that. I don't even know if they ever even play them, but if nothing else, maybe they go listen to it on Spotify and they can, uh, do, you know, not feel guilty about it later. So <laughs> that's how I look at it. I had a young kid come up to me at a gig and he, the kid was 23 years old and he flat out said that it was at a Marsha ball gig with, uh, but I, I always do a song. She, she allows me to do a song and then I sell my own CDs at the gig. And he comes up, he goes, Hey man, uh, I'm 23 years old. You know, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm not going to buy a CD for me, but here's 20 bucks. I'm going to go listen to you on Spotify. So and I thought, man, if everybody just did that, oh, for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a problem with streaming at all. If everybody would just do that, you know? Um, my final question, and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate the chance to talk oh, this, to you. This has been great. Thank you. Um, do you still have goals? And if so, what would the goals going forward be at this point? Um, well, the like it, we uh, touched on this earlier, how the pandemic really changed a lot of things uh, about what I, you know, um, I'm in an interesting place right now because I've been on the road for 30 years and uh honestly i mean i'd still love playing in different towns and seeing all the people seeing old friends and making new friends and making new fans and stuff but it's not nearly as fun as it used to be or profitable um you know you used to be able to go out and play four or five six nights even bands with with nothing going on i mean marcia marcia can go out we can go out for a two-week run and pretty, maybe have one or two nights off you know if they book it uh you know, enough in advance and there'll be people there every night. But, um, you know, if I were to jump in the van with my own band right now, there would basically be no gigs except for maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's, you know, when I first started doing this in the uh, late eighties and nineties, there were so many bands on the road and this not just in blues, but in all kinds of genres that could play seven nights a week. And you just travel from town to town and you could do that. And the hotel rooms were cheaper. Gas was cheaper. Food was cheaper. Everything was, it was more economically feasible. And there were just playing gigs. There's just not places playing music on Tuesday and Wednesday nights anymore. Right. So, uh, it's just, I really, uh, young bands that are starting out, I feel like, they have it a lot harder than uh, than we did. I had it harder than say Elvin and and Marsha's generation. I mean, Marsha was used to be able to get in the van two hundred fifty nights a year and just travel from town to town. They could do that as much as they wanted to, you know. Right. So that was starting to change in the nineties and then into the late two thousands, and now it's it's the bottom has completely dropped out of it, and they're not able to sell their music. So I don't know how these young bands do it. I mean, they're out there selling T shirts and you know beer koozies and keychains and stuff you know they're they're in like this merchandise business trying to do that and then i've even heard recently that a lot of labels so you sign a label the label wants a cut of even that they want a cut of your t-shirts or your logo they want to own part of your logo for so i'm not sure how i'm not sure what the future is really but in terms of my goals uh my goal now is i'm 56 now so my goal now is to uh just enjoy enjoy every bit of it like i'm you know not not I want to take any gig I want to take any opportunity for the right reasons that make sense either make sense for my career or uh, or make sense financially or make sense because you know I'm going to really enjoy it because you know life's too short to not not have a good time so I just want to have fun uh, the rest of the way out so whatever that entails whether that's staying home or going out on tour uh, I just want it to make sense and I'm, I'm a lot more clear about 
a lot more clear about that now than I probably used to be. I used to jump at every opportunity. So. Well, I presume you will continue writing your songs, your great songs. Thank you. I hope. I hope so. Uh, what always happens is when I put out an album, then I kind of go into PR mode, and uh, I'm, I'm really just you know everything. If I have any time now, I feel like it's wrapped up in a in pushing that pushing the album that's out. But what always happens is later, uh, you know, the songs start coming again. So I just I've learned not to worry about it. If there's if there's no songs in my head right now, they're they're back there. That just haven't come out. So. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great talking to you. Great talking to you.